So today we remember that wonderful day of Pentecost. The word Pentecostal has become a, a contentious word in the church over the years. Now what would you do, or what would you say if as a church I told you that you should be striving to be Pentecostal, to be a Pentecostal church? I see you've got Reformed Community Church there. Does that clash with being a Pentecostal church? And I want to tell you, not at all. Not at all. Now, before you regret inviting me here, let me just explain quickly what I mean by that. <laughs> obviously, because today is the day of Pentecost, I'm not talking denominationally. I'm, obviously, I'm not saying that we should follow the ways of the denomination that have claimed the name Pentecostal. It's not, I'm not criticizing them. I'm not commending them. I'm just saying that we need to look at the church on the day of Pentecost and we need to strive to be like that. Maybe we should say the church of Pentecost rather than the Pentecostal church. Because today we remember what happened on that day. Basically the day the church was born. There are some theologians who bring out little points that maybe that makes it a bit of a, a statement of contention as well. But really it was the day that the church was born. Every single church today should be standing in the inheritance of that day, of the day of Pentecost. And what does that mean? Well, at first it was a truly remarkable day, an incredible day. It was a day full of miracles, and it was a day where prophecies were fulfilled. And I want to read from, if you want to find Acts chapter 2, verse 1 in your, um, in your Bibles. Our reading this morning is quite a long reading. I'm not apologizing for that, I'm just telling you. We're reading from verse 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in heaven, I'm sorry, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some however made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Amen. Just so far in the word of the Lord. What a day. As I said, a day of miracles. I want to ask you a question, but please don't answer. Just in case you're wrong and then it gets embarrassing. What was the biggest miracle that day? There were quite a few miracles that day. What was the biggest miracle that day? Well, we just read it now. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. That was the true miracle of Pentecost. 3,000 sinners were convicted of their sin and turned to Christ in faith. 3,000 souls that were lost were reborn and were found. And a day of fulfilled prophecy. Listen to this. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. An 800-year-old prophecy came true that day. So let's have a look at the situation. Let's have a look at the context of, of the story now. 
Everything was in place for the church age to begin, for the church to be born. What do I mean by that? The story of the Bible can really be broken up into three parts, three quick parts. Creation, decreation and recreation. Decreation, chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Decreation, or the fall, the fall into sin. It's chapter 3, but it actually carries on till chapter 11. But the damage is done in chapter 3. And we see how it continues up until chapter 11. And then recreation. From chapter 12 onwards. It's all the story of God's plan to put things right. To restore everything. And to redeem a, a, a people for himself. We could also add to that pre-creation and glorification. But we'll leave that to the theologians for now. It's all about recreating God's plan for, for the world. For fellowship with his people and we could actually even that recreation in the bible we could divide that into three parts the old testament where god is preparing from chapter 12 of, of genesis where god is preparing the people for the arrival of the savior for the arrival of his son and then of course that part where jesus arrived where jesus was born the incarnation the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us so from there then he spent 30 years with us as, a, as a, a, a man, as a boy and a man, and then he spent three years witnessing to us. And that's the, the work of the Savior. He was teaching us the way to salvation. And then he became the way to salvation. He did the work necessary for us to be saved. And then finally, the last part, the gathering in of the harvest, the church age, the calling in of his people. And on that morning, that day of Pentecost, when the disciples woke up, everything was in place for the final stage of God's plan for redemption. Everything was going exactly as the Lord had ordained it. Somewhere along the line, the disciples in that they must have had doubts when Jesus was arrested, when he was crucified. But he had brought everything back together. And everything was ready now. From chapter 12 of Genesis, where God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to be, later to become Babylon. Oh, that's when the plan of redemption began. When he called the people to himself. And from Abraham, the Lord raised up a people for himself. They were to be the Lord's representatives, his ambassadors, his witnesses on earth. In Exodus 19, we read there, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? A kingdom of priests means that you will be my mediators between me and, and, and the world. The priest's job was to represent God to the people, the people to God, they were mediators. So the whole of the na Israel, nation of Israel was to be those priests, the nation of priests. And a holy nation means a nation separated from the sin of the world, taken out. The word church that we've had translate come, comes from the translation from the Greek word ecclesia, which means the called out ones, those who've been called out of the world. God gave them the law, he gave them the tabernacle, he gave them the priesthood. And all of these things pointed directly to Jesus in every way. And there's a lovely Bible study for you. Go see how the tabernacle and the priesthood, all of those things, and the sacrifices, all point to Jesus in every single way. And then came the next major part of redemption history. The incarnation. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born man, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Better, actually, a better translation is, he tabernacled amongst us. 
He set up his tent amongst us. And for the next 30 years, Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. And that's very important. When we take Holy Communion and we take the bread and it says there, this is my body, which is given for you. Not only was his body broken for us, but it means the life he lived for us. You know, Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means your life. So Jesus gave his perfect sinless life, the life that you and I couldn't live. He gave that for us. And after 30 years, John the Baptist declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And then for three years, Jesus prepared us, prepared the people. We've got the wonderful record of it. He shows them the way to salvation. He shows them the way to be right with God. And then he dies on the cross, tearing that curtain down, opening the way for us to go into God's presence. He conquers death, he conquers sin, and he conquers Satan. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. Very important, by the way. He ascended into heaven to prepare a place for you and for me, and to intercede for us while we're continuing on in this life. And the only thing left, only thing left for God's plan for redemption of mankind is the spreading of the gospel. What we call the church age, our job. The baton's been passed down to us now. Often quoted as the last days in the Bible, from the day of the ascension till the day Jesus comes back again. That's why Joel, when Peter quotes Joel, he says, in the last days. And what he quotes from Joel was happening on that day. So now I want us to consider for a moment, just say we're given the job. God is about to launch his church upon the world. The world is about to receive the best news that it ever can, and it's news it doesn't want to hear. Forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. But imagine now we're given the job to plan the launch. What are we going to have to consider? Because this is a group of, a small group of men when Jesus gave the all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations, he was speaking to his disciples. Eleven men, going to be joined by others soon, but eleven men, uneducated men mostly, poor men, that have to now take this message not to Jerusalem, but to the world. But now the launch is coming. That's why Jesus said, wait there, wait in Jerusalem, don't do anything. Don't do anything until you have received the gift that the Father has promised. So now we're going to launch this new product, shall we say, this wonderful news. What do we need to consider? Well, first of all, we want as many people as possible to be there at the launch, don't we? We want as many of the right people to be there. So we want the, the, the news to get out as fast and effectively as possible. So what do, we, what do we have to decide? We have to, where are we going to have this launch? When are we going to have the launch? How are we going to get the right target market there? How are we going to communicate effectively? If we were going to go and try and uh, do a launch of anything in Kayalicha, I'm not going to be the speaker. We would have to get somebody who can speak the right language. How are we going to get it to all the different languages? Have you ever considered how God covered all of these things so easily? You see, the day of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was a very, very important celebration in the Jewish calendar. 
It was what they call one of the three pilgrim festivals. There were seven festivals, three of them pilgrim. So people had to come to Jerusalem for these festivals. And that means that all the Jews were required to be in Jerusalem at this time. And this is very important because it also gives us our right target market. They would be staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. These are the people we want to start with. God-fearing Jews. Jews who knew their scriptures. We see in Peter's sermon there, he quotes the scriptures a lot. And Jews who feared God. This is the wonderful start. We, these are the people we want there. And they all come into Jerusalem. We don't even have to try and attract them there. But here's the big thing. These God-fearing Jews who are in Jerusalem don't have to be equipped and sent out. They're given the gospel and they go home with it. All over the world. 3,000 of them. That Ethiopian was on his way back because he had heard what was going on in Jerusalem. They didn't have to be sent anywhere. They just got the message and they went home with it. What a wonderful launch. But there's still that problem of how we're going to communicate, eh? Well, the Lord takes care of all of these problems so easily. Most of the visiting Jews have been living for generations in foreign languages, in foreign countries, since the dispersion. They couldn't speak Hebrew, they couldn't speak Aramaic. What to do? What to do? Well, if we were in charge, we would have to get a translator, or we'd have to learn the language or something. But thank goodness the Lord Almighty, He was in charge. And for God, this was no problem. Those men didn't know what was coming upon them. They didn't know. They didn't plan this. But the Holy Spirit of God filled these men and enabled them to speak in languages they'd never spoken before. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Other languages, other tongues, glossia, where we get our word glossary for dictionary. On top of that, just remember all the time, the Lord was in control of everything that took place that day. Even the changing of the hearts. So it's amazing that we read this right in the beginning. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that wonderful? We didn't plan that. God does it. God takes you out your... your heart of stone and gives you that heart of flesh. Now how any of you, I'm sure that there's a number of you, I don't know many of you, but I'm sure that many of you have been involved in evangelism in some form or the other. Perhaps running a Sunday school, or whatever. But how would you like to get the response to your message that Peter got? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How would you like to get that kind of response? And the church was born. 3,000 were added to their number that day. So in what way should we be a, a church of Pentecost? What, of the, what should we inherit from that, that wonderful day? Well, first of all, we know that they were a praying church. We've often said in our church, in our little, we've got a, a small church that's just starting to grow now. And we've often said we want to be known not for our glory, but for God's glory, as a praying church. We want to be a praying church. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. When we started in chapter 2 of verse 1, we, we would have read, when the day of Pentecost came, 
they were all together in one place. There's no reason to imagine they weren't praying. They were joined together constantly in prayer. They were a praying church. They were a church on their knees. And secondly, they were a unified church. Now, as you go through the New Testament, go through Philippians, in fact, the whole of the New Testament, the unity of the church is so, so, so important that we love one another. Don't worry if the, if the baby makes a noise. I really don't mind. I want to just play, share a story with you quickly. The one day we were preach, I was preaching in Belizedorp and a couple brought their five-year-old daughter in, granddaughter with them. They were older couple. And uh, the granddaughter didn't want to go out. And they said, no, she'll behave herself. She'll be fine. And she was. She behaved beautifully. Until I was about five minutes from the end of the sermon and I just took a breath. And I just heard from the back of the church, this is so boring. <laughs> of course, the, the grandparents were mortified, but everybody else loved it. Okay, so they were a unified church. We really must love one another. You know, that was what our Lord left them on the day of, uh, at, in that upper room discourse. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Our witness depends on our love for one another. So they were a praying church, they were a unified church, but they were a preaching church. And that's really, that's what we need to be. We need to be a praying church, we need to love one another. Love one another even when you don't agree with one another. We can sort out our differences in love, but we also need to be a preaching church. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The first thing they did when the Spirit came upon them is they began to preach. What were they saying? It says here they began to speak in other tongues. But what were they saying? The people were amazed to hear the disciples speaking in their own language and they said, we hear, him, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The Spirit of God filled them and they began to speak about God. They were a preaching church, an evangelical church. And they preached the gospel. If you read through our, our reading this morning, you'll notice that 65% of that reading is, of the whole story is about Peter's sermon. 65% of that story is preaching. The Spirit came upon them and they preached. The Spirit came upon Peter and he preached. This is the first spiritual sermon in the Bible preached by anybody except Jesus Christ. That is how it must be. As a church, we must be preaching every chance we get, praying every chance we get. And that's for every Christian, by the way. You know, in his church to the, I mean, in his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul says, I am obligated to preach, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. His own spirit, the spirit of God, obligated him to preach about God. And of course, this doesn't only mean standing up here preaching. In fact, they never had a pulpit there. They never had a building. They never... Peter stood up and began to preach. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. They were all preaching. And he stood up to answer their questions and he started preaching. Didn't organize anything. He just got up and started preaching. I'm sure he stood on something that they could all hear him. But he just stood up and started preaching. We must be careful of making preaching something 
sacred that only gets done on a Sunday morning here. The church that I grew up in, they, they, they renovated the whole church and they put the pulpit up there. They, the, the men in the church called it, the preacher would go up to six foot above contradiction. <laughs> Standing up there where nobody can touch him. No, we just we preach wherever we are and whatever chance we get. So the first and the first immediate result of the filling of the Spirit was a preaching of the Word. And that's logical, isn't it? I don't have to remind you that the, 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 the Word is the Spirit of God. It's the only offensive weapon we have in the armor of God. It's the only weapon with which we can attack the Bible. We need to preach the Bible. I'm sure many of you know of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very well-known Welsh preacher, author of some of the best Christian books you can get. He was very zealous for God and for the Word of God. And on his tomb is inscribed 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What did Paul say? We preach Christ and Him crucified. He's even put it on his tomb so that he can carry on preaching even after he's gone. He said, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that preaching must be logic on fire. They actually had a Quite a few years ago, they had a seminar in, in Cape Town for, for the peach, preaching fraternity, and they taught the logic on fire. If we're preaching the Word of God, our words will be logical. And we need to have our hearts on fire. doesn't mean shouting, necessarily. Some people like to I, I get loud sometimes myself. I apologize if I do that. But it doesn't mean shouting. It's just using the logic of Scripture. We read about Paul arguing with the people from Scripture. And if we preach in the Spirit of God, it will be on fire. So how did they preach? They preached from the Word of God. If we look at Peter's sermon, you'll see that it's based on Scripture. What we would call the Old Testament. They never had the New Testament there. It was based on the Word of God. He preached with passion. He preached with belief. But they also used the gifts that God had given them. On that day, it was the, the gift was a gift of tongues. This is not a sermon on tongues today, but on that day, the gift of tongues made it possible for them to go and speak to everybody at the same time. wouldn't be necessary for me to speak in tongues right now because you all understand English. They continued in the Word. You know, we, we've read up to verse 21. So they preached from the Word, but they continued in the Word. Verse 42, we read about... In Acts 2 verse 42 onwards to verse 47, we read about that early church. And we read five things that they did there. But the first thing that we read is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what they continued to do. Preach from the Word of God. The whole of the, the, the story of Acts is a series of sermons. And it's always spreading the gospel. And as I said, the second mark of the Pentecostal church is that everyone was preaching. It might be better to say everyone is, was evangelizing. Do you think that the Great Commission could be achieved by pastors alone, by preachers alone? Of course not. Of course not. Well, it, it could be if that's what God had decided. But of course not. He chose every Christian to be an evangelist. Because you see, there might be somebody that you know, that you have a chance to evangelize, that will never come into the, the doors of a church otherwise. That will never sit in a congregation listening. 
Evangelism is not waiting for the lost to come to us. We have to go out there to the lost. Romans 10 verse 14. How then can they call upon the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? We need preachers, we need missionaries, we need Sunday school teachers, but we also need believers who are prepared to evangelize at the workplace, at the book club. And finally they preached the truth and the Lord blessed them. They preached the gospel, the full gospel. Forgiveness of sin. Man's sin and forgiveness of sin. There's many churches today that uh, they don't want to talk about sin anymore. We had a friend in Valisdorf in who went over to England and was given an opportunity to preach in a church there. And he said, look, I'm just going to give a simple gospel message. And they said, no, no, we don't do that anymore. He said, if you do that, the church will be empty next Sunday. So how are we bringing the new life to the people? What was the result of fearless, truthful preaching? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And there's the answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God's grace, God's love, God's mercy. And it all started at that wonderful day of Pentecost. And that's the miracle of Pentecost. I just want to finish with reading the miracle of Pentecost. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church was born and the church was launched. Amen. Let's bow our heads and our hearts once again. Lord, we thank you as we remember our first birthday. The birthday of the church. When we remember that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. Oh Lord, how wonderful for us to know that the same thing happens with us when we come to know you through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I just pray that we have your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Let us pray to be filled with your Spirit, to get out of the way and allow your Spirit to, to use the gifts that you have given us to proclaim your, your truth, Lord. And oh Lord, I, I just pray that you'll help us to be sensitive to every opportunity that comes our way to be able to witness for you. Oh, how often have we said, I blew a chance there. Help us not to do that, Lord. To remember and to, to be sensitive to those opportunities. And oh Lord, I just pray when those opportunities arise that you will bless them. Whether it's with our neighbor, whether it's preaching to a congregation, whether it's with our children or grandchildren. Would you bless them, Lord? Would you bless those opportunities? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mark.